You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The Last of the Mohicans, which came out in 1992. It was directed by Michael Mann. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Wes Studi, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington, Terry Kinney, and Maurice Roves. The genre would be romantic historical adventure. He was a warrior who fought for freedom. I think you and I are going to have a serious disagreement. A leader who defied authority and a rebel who surrendered to no one. What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. 20th Century Fox proudly presents Daniel Day-Lewis. Stay alive, no matter what occurs. Madeline Stone. The Last of the Mohicans, rated R. I remember seeing this opening weekend with my mother at a theater in Fresh Meadows, Queens, in New York, surrounded by a bunch of Jewish-slash-Italian-slash-Greek-whatever housewives and grandmas, all of them swooning to Daniel Day-Lewis running around with his flowing hair. And I couldn't blame them. At its core, this is basically a lush, old-fashioned romantic hero story, resulting in probably the most conventional movie which Michael Mann has ever directed, though he still does it quite well. Day-Lewis plays Hawkeye, who grew up with the Mohican tribe, even though he's not one of them. And even though we learn about the ongoing struggles of both the Mohican and Huron, and even Mohawk tribes, in relation to the ongoing threat from European colonizers, it's Hawkeye who is treated as the main character, and the audience avatar for the most part. Where's your real family? They buried my mom, pa, and my sisters. Shingachgook family, the two French trappers, raised me up as his own. I'm sorry. I not remember. I wasn't but one or two. How did you learn English? My father sent Uncas and I to Reverend Wheelock's school when I was ten. And while telling the story this way might seem dated, well, it is, as this was based on a massive fiction novel written by James Fenimore Cooper 196 years ago. This film adaptation also came out 30 years ago, at a time when Hollywood was just starting to tell stories like these with increased focus on the point of view of Native Americans. Also bear in mind that this film was released less than two years after the multiple Oscar-winning smash Dances with Wolves, a film which took us very much into the world of the Sioux tribe in the 1800s, yet mainly focused on star Kevin Costner's character's story as an American soldier who forms a bond with them. Hmm. The fierce one, as I call him, seems a very tough fellow. I hope I never have to fight him. Well, hey, progress is progress, and these films were certainly a step in the right direction, eventually leading to more films focusing entirely on the Native American experience, such as Smoke Signals and Antrenajat, The Fast Runner. What Mann did with this story, as director and co-writer, was broader, with different point of views, as even though Hawkeye and Korra get the most screen time, the emotional through-line of this movie focuses more on two key Native American characters who are adapting to this recent incursion on each of their lives in very different ways. Russell Means plays Chingachuk, who is Hawkeye's adopted father and one of only two remaining from his Mohican tribe, the other being his son Uncas, played by Eric Schwig. He has watched as most of his family and fellow tribesmen have been wiped out over the past several decades, and his ongoing response to this seems to be very adaptive. Chingachuk gets along well with the local colonials, 
with his ongoing focus on being a good father to both of his sons. He's a formidable warrior, but is not looking for a fight. Whereas Magua, as played by Wes Studi, is on an ongoing mission of revenge against the British. Magua's village and lodges were burnt. Magua's children were killed by the English. I was taken a slave by the Mohawk who fought for the Grey Air. And now Magua is bitter, angry, and dead set on revenge, even when that means striking up sketchy alliances with the French, who were fighting against the British at this point in the 1700s. And as a result, the true climax of the film is an intense but short-lived face-off between Magua and Chigachuk, which I'll get to a bit later. The action is not just exciting, but brutal, as we witness the rapid-fire ferocity which results when one side on this conflict is ambushed by the other, which happens a few times. None of this is taking anything away from Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, of course, as he fully inhabits this character while still delivering what is likely also his most obvious movie star performance. His Hawkeye is very much a conventional action hero, and that's where the several months of preparation that Day-Lewis did before filming really shows. Apparently, he lived in the wilderness by himself for extended periods of time, learned to live off the land, and he also trained exhaustively to master the usage of many time-specific tools and weapons. So he's walking the walk, definitely. Beyond that, Madeline Stowe is pretty fantastic as well, as she brings genuine emotion and depth to Cora, a British aristocrat quickly adapting to her rustic surroundings and isn't even afraid to get in on the fight when necessary. But this man is guilty of sedition and subject to military justice and beyond pardon. Justice? If that's justice, then the sooner French guns blow the English army out of America, the better it will be for the people here. You do not know what you're saying! Yes, I do. I know exactly what I'm saying. And if it's a sedition, then I am guilty of sedition too. Her scenes with Day-Lewis are, of course, what was most celebrated about this film at the time of release. They do have scorching chemistry, no doubt. What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. And for the most part, it's a believable romance with minimal melodrama. Except, of course, one oft-quoted monologue given by Day-Lewis late in the movie, which really does sound overtly like cheesy movie dialogue. But hey... They used it in the trailers to sell the movie, and apparently it worked. Stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far. I will find you. Overall, this movie pretty much accomplishes everything it sets out to do in just under two hours. There's beautiful, lush scenery, suspenseful action, political intrigue, engrossing romance, and a very tragic coda, which brings the story full circle when we hear the title of this story uttered and explained in an organic matter. And here's a hint. Despite what the marketing would have had you believe at the time, Daniel Day-Lewis was not playing the actual Last of the Mohicans. A warrior goes to you swift and straight as an arrow shot into the sun. Welcome him and let him take his place at the council fire of my people. He is Uncas, my son. Tell him to be patient and ask death for speed. For they are all there but one. I. Last of the Mohicans. And now the categories. The first category, well, actually, I'm going to jumble these in order a little bit. The first category this episode will be Wasted Talent, the most underutilized talent involved with the film. 
Apparently, there was originally a three-plus-hour director's cut from Michael Mann, which was his true vision for The Last of the Mohicans, which included a much more fleshed-out story for several characters. However, at the time of production, he was still not a particularly commercially viable director, so the studio Fox insisted that he pare this down to two hours to make it a more audience-friendly movie. And it worked, as this film was a pretty sizable international hit when it came out in the fall of 1992, making more than $140 million worldwide on a $40 million budget. Still, there was a lot left on the cutting room floor, most notably the real narrative meat of a romantic subplot between the respective siblings of our two main lovebird protagonists, Alice Monroe, played by Jodie May, and Uncas, played by Eric Schwieg. What makes this more obvious is that by the end of this film, as the tension ratchets up, it becomes increasingly obvious that there is some sort of romantic connection between these two characters, even though we are given zero setup for it. The cliffside climax very much hinges on Unka's desire to rescue Alice, and after he is slain by Magua, we then see Alice look down upon his body and jump off the cliff in defiance of Magua, who's trying to capture her. Yeah, pretty moving stuff. Yet throughout the entire movie leading up to this, we never see any dialogue between these two characters. And to make matters worse, Alice is given virtually no dialogue during the second half of the film. It's all quite jarring in retrospect, and it just leaves this version feeling partially incomplete. Both of these characters meet such powerful endings that I would have loved to have seen more actual build-up to those endings. And now we are going to combine the next two categories. The best needle drop? the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, and the trailer moment, the scene or moment that best describes this movie. The stirring score by Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman is legendary. If you were in a college dorm during the mid-90s, which I was, there's a strong possibility that one of your dorm mates had this soundtrack on CD and was even playing it on a regular basis. It's just hugely recognizable and hummable music driven by a lively string section with thumping drums maintaining a steady rhythm. I'm of course referring to the most iconic theme from this score, which we hear during two key sequences. The official track name is Promontory. We first hear it about halfway through the movie when Hawkeye seeks out Cora at Fort William Henry. They stare at each other, and then embrace, and then we're off. It's pretty romantic music, but for me, it works even better for what I would definitely consider this film's trailer moment, which is the culmination of the climax on the edge of that cliff I mentioned earlier. And I would consider this one of the most impactful seven minutes of screen time of film from this era all driven by this music, of course, and without any dialogue. This is just a dazzling sequence. It kicks off with the final judgment of Sachem, the Huron chief, and as those violins kick in, everybody starts to separate, and the suspense builds as the music does. We see Magua traversing through some rocky terrain with several warriors alongside him, with Alice as his prisoner. We see Hawkeye using his marksmanship to give a merciful kill shot to the permanently friend-zoned Duncan, who is being burned alive in place of Korra. We see Uncas running furiously through the woods while tracking Magua's party with his father just a few clicks behind him. 
And of course, we see the aforementioned cliffside fight between Uncas and Magua, which is brutal and intense, as Magua always seems to have the upper hand right up until the point where he unceremoniously slices Uncas' neck and pushes him off the cliff, resulting in a haunting slow-motion shot of Chingachuk as he screams watching his son die. All of the camera work here is impressive, thanks to cinematographer Dante Spinotti. There's an ideal balance between the facial expressions of these characters relatively up close and longer shots of them amidst all the scenery. So we always have a good idea of the action and also their reactions to what's happening. But no shot up until this point tops the absolute money shot, as far as I'm concerned. After Hawkeye has shot several more of Magua's men, while Chingachuk barrels towards him on that cliffside, we see this amazing center frame image of Magua now waiting for this fight, arms spread with a hatchet in one hand and a knife in the other. The music picks up a notch as we know it's on. Two proud fathers now in full-on revenge mode. What happens after between these two aged warriors is, of course, violent and short-lived, and it works. But the most memorable moment is that lasting image of Studi's Magua standing there, ready for what will be his final fight. This brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now, I'm going to go a bit controversial with this one, though let me make something clear. Michael Mann is one of our elite living directors. I love just about every film he has done. And if I'm being honest, he's pretty much the default MVP for almost every film he directs. The meticulousness he puts into this production is incredible. He went all out, filming in many of the most authentic-seeming locations, no matter how treacherous. However, to this day, this doesn't feel like a fully complete film. As I said before regarding certain subplots, it feels obvious at times that some scenes were missing. As strong as this film is, it just does not seem to embody his full vision. And yes, Day-Lewis is the star of this film in a performance that's loaded with all the charisma he can muster. I mean, wow, just watching him run tirelessly through the woods, sometimes carrying a musket in each arm, I still find myself spooning at times. He can literally hold his own in these sequences with the most celebrated of big-time guys-guy movie stars in their prime. Connery, Ford, Schwarzenegger, you name it. However, as developed within the screenplay, his character is not the most interesting one on screen, as his motivations and actions are always pretty much straightforward. That's why you men ought to join this fight! You do what you want with your own scalp, and I'll be telling us what we ought to do with ours. You call yourself a patriot? And loyal subject to the crown. Do not call myself subject to much at all. <laughs> In some ways, it's a thankless protagonist role, even though Daniel Day-Lewis does the most that he can with it. To me personally, Wes Studi's performance as Magua is the standout, and he is the tragic, bitter soul of this story. However it seems on the surface at times, this is not a triumphant story. Everything is being told to us in the context of witnessing an entire civilization getting gradually wiped out, with the tragic undercurrent being that under Magua's leadership, the Hurons might be the most formidable tribe now, but they're just mainly buying time. 
aligning themselves with the French isn't going to change that in the long run. We are soberly reminded of this fact when late in the movie, all key parties gather for a council with the elder Huron chief, Sachem, who will decide what can be done with the British prisoners who have been taken by Magua at that point. Mainly Cora and Alice, as they are both daughters of the British Colonel Monroe, whom he is seeking revenge against. The Huron chief starts off his decision by calmly uttering, The white man came, and night entered our future with him. And almost everything spoken after that feels much less consequential, especially the delusional response from Magua in this scene, as he's forcefully declaring that the French will soon fear the Huron and eventually see them as equals. Would Magua use the ways of Le Francais and the Yengis? Would you? Yes! It's pretty clear that Magua is getting the revenge that he has sought, but not much else. He really has no endgame here, and he didn't do anything to ensure the survival of his tribe. We fear this guy, and we feel for him at the same time, which is not to say that we are always rooting for him as he commits some truly brutal acts at points, even carving out a man's heart in the middle of battle. No matter, because we just can't take our eyes off of him. Every minute of screen time, Studi just owns the screen with that glare of his. And I love how he speaks French with such disdain during some critical scenes. And despite the romance and a few other subplots, the second half of this film is just not nearly as interesting without his revenge story seemingly driving it. And this brings me back to a running theme I've had with other notable genre films from this era. It's all about the villain. A great villain performance will drive a certain type of mainstream entertainment, no matter how much we like the hero, nor how much excellence we witness in front of or behind the camera. In most of my reviews from major blockbusters from that late 80s into early 90s era, the MVP is almost always the actor playing the main antagonist. The Fugitive, Basic Instinct, License to Kill, Die Hard, Batman Returns. So why should this be any different? For portraying one of the best villains of this or any era... Wes Studi is the MVP. Why do you hate the gray hair, Magua? When the gray hair is dead, Magua will eat his heart. Before he dies, Magua will put his children under the knife so the gray hair will know his seed is wiped out forever. My rating for The Last of the Mohicans is four and a half stars out of five. Thirty years later, this still really holds up as a satisfying historical adventure, and having reviewed other prominent Michael Mann films of late, including Heat and Thief, I wouldn't say that this is close to his best, but it's still damn impressive, as he shows the blockbuster directors out there, at least at the time, how it's done. And if you're looking to watch The Last of the Mohicans, it is currently available to buy or rent on all major streaming platforms. And that ends another swift and straight as an arrow shot into the sun review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.